Hi, everyone. My name is Valerie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Anybody want to trade? Um, <clears throat> you know, I told my sponsor earlier this year that I wanted to work on not being so invisible in front of groups of people, but this is not what I had in mind. <laughs> um, but I guess if you ask for help, God provides situations where you can get that help. Um, I'm a little nervous. <clears throat> Mary asked me to speak about four months ago, uh, or three months ago, and uh, when she first asked me, she called me like on a Thursday night and um, <clears throat> asked me if I would speak, and I said I had to think about it for a couple of days. You know, I just, I had a moment of self-doubt. I just didn't think that I could do it, and uh, I called her back the next day and said I would do it because I've taken so much from the Roundup. It's given me so much. I haven't been here eight years, but I've been here seven years, and um, <clears throat> there's just no way that I could say no to it. Um, she did ask me to share what it was like for me and what happened and what it's like now, and I'll try to follow that. Um, as I was thinking about my lead, I kept trying to like write notes, and I just, I mean, I, all I could come up with was an outline, because I have to speak from my heart. I just can't sit down and, and put it all on paper. Um, <clears throat> So I'll start with uh, my family background and the dynamic that that was in. And I always want to say I came from a normal family, but I'm just kidding. That's a joke. I came from a dysfunctional family. Uh, my father was the alcoholic in my family. Um, his alcoholism was displayed in the form of rage, not violence, but emotional rage. Um, and I just understood that about five years ago. Um, I had two brothers and a sister. <clears throat> my sister died when I was seven and she was 15, and that's when my father's alcoholism began to escalate. Um, he always blamed himself for that situation, and it was an unexpected death, and uh, there was nothing he could do about it, but uh, he had a weakness himself, and he always blamed himself, um, and that's when his alcoholism just took off. and. I've come to learn through the program that, you know, when you're in a dysfunctional family, it doesn't matter if it's only one person, it affects everybody. Um, my family grew up with a lot of tragedies. We were a close family, but we always had a lot of unexpected deaths and accidents. And um, the way that we dealt with that was to keep everything inside. Um, the way that my family's idea of grief was <clears throat> to be strong, and being strong meant don't show how you feel. Um, it was kind of like just keep yourself together, and we never talked about a lot of things. And I just, you know, as a child, I mean, I never fit in. I never knew who I was or what I wanted or um, anything. Uh, I don't know what it was about me as a kid that didn't fit in with the other kids in school and... Um, I do know, though, at the age of seven that I had um, a strong attraction to women, even though I knew nothing about relationships or nothing about being gay. <clears throat> but I also know that I knew not to talk about it. And I don't know where I got that from, but I just knew that it wasn't something that was okay to talk about. Um, so, like I said, I have two brothers and a sister and, and grew up in that family. My younger brother was the baby and my older brother was very successful and much older than me and then there was me and I was kind of like the lost child um, the way that I learned to fit in was through athletics um, I was 
and a natural athlete, and that was the only place where I had some peace. Um, so that's what I used to vent any of my emotion or to be accepted by other people. Um, during, you know, growing up in my family with my father's rage, the way that I handled it was if I could just be quiet, things will be better. If I could just be invisible, things would be better. And so that's how I learned how to stuff my feelings early on. <clears throat> so I didn't uh, get into using alcohol until well, I had my first drink when I was 18. And I thought, alcohol tastes so bad, who could ever drink this stuff? <laughs> and, I, and I didn't touch it again for a year until I was 19. When on my 19th birthday, birthday, they had just changed the law back where you could drink at 19, so I thought I was a hot shot. And I started drinking again, and uh, I didn't stop. You know, even though that first drink didn't taste very good, I liked the feeling that I got after a couple. And it was the first time that I had ever had that feeling, a feeling of self-esteem, uh, a feeling that I was attractive, that I was talkative, that I was sociable. Um, that's what it did for me the first time that I uh, really started to drink. <coughs> um, so I went on, you know, 19, I went on to college, and, uh, you know, drinking in college is pretty popular, so I fit right in. And now I had this big refrigerator, no food, all beer. And, you know, people would always come to my room because they knew that I had plenty. Um, so, I, you know, I did that for two years, and... My, my junior year in college, I came home from semester break, <clears throat> and that's when I found out that um, my mom was ill. And we didn't know what was wrong with her <clears throat> when I was on semester break, so she ended up being in the, in the hospital. And that's when I really started to uh, drink the most. We ended up being in Minnesota at Mayo Clinic for six months. And it's probably the only time that I'll ever say this, but during that period, alcohol saved my life. Um, my mom was in the hospital, and I stayed in the hotel that whole time and would be there every day. And, and being around people that are really sick and terminally ill, it was just really hard. And because I had left school in the middle of the semester, like no one knew where I went. I just didn't have any contact with people, so there there wasn't anyone that I had there for support. And I would go home in the evening with all this emotion and no place to get it out. <clears throat> so alcohol became my friend to survive that situation. Um, that's like one of the first times that I really remember using it to get help, you know, to just have some place to vent myself. Um, <clears throat> So six months later, we came home from that, and then I was the pri she was terminally ill, and I was the primary caregiver. <clears throat> and they said that she would, wouldn't live for a year, and she did die four months later. <clears throat> and the reason that I talk about that situation is because now I can look back on it and say that I was much stronger than I ever gave myself credit for. Um, it was an extremely difficult situation. To, to this day, I think it's probably the most difficult thing that I've ever gone through. Um, and I also think that I probably should have had some professional help after that situation was over. <coughs> what made it so difficult is, like I said, in my family, we all stuffed our feelings. And 
here I was a primary caregiver and my brothers emotionally just couldn't be there for me. They just just didn't have it. Of course, I resented that and had a lot of anger and hurt. And then after that situation was over and I wanted to talk about it, no one wanted to listen to it. And so I started to feel ashamed about the pain that I had gone through, about the grieving process. I, I mean, I was just so ashamed. Like, this is not something that you talk about with other people. <clears throat> Today, I know that um, in grieving, it's a natural process in dealing with death, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. <clears throat> so after that happened, I managed to go back to college and continue drinking. And while I was at school, a nun was probably the first person to mention to me that I drank too much. <clears throat> and the reason that she mentioned that to me is because I lived on the third floor. They lived on the, the nuns lived on the second floor, and other students lived on the first, first, fourth floor. And one day, I walked upstairs, and I could feel the base of my stereo in the floor, and it was just driving the nuns crazy. And they had said, you know, maybe you think you have a problem here, because every time I would drink, I would just crank the stereo up. And so that was my first subtle message that I might have a problem with alcohol. Um, I went on to finish college and got a job two weeks after I was out. But my life didn't have any direction. There wasn't anything that really meant anything to me. I was just hanging out in bars, and in my mind, I thought, well, as long as I drink outside of my home, it's not a problem. But if I start to drink at home, then maybe it's a problem. Talk about denial. <clears throat> um, so I played those little head games for about seven years, and I think... Having a job, having a nice place to live, having some money in the bank, all that outside stuff helped me to stay in denial because I could always find a way to rationalize it. And today, I mean, inside I was miserable. You know, and today the outside stuff doesn't mean anything to me. It's how I feel on the inside in my relationship with God. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know how I got to AA the first time, I think. I mean, I don't know where I heard of AA, but... In my head during that time that I was drinking, I always thought that I can stop whenever I want. I just don't want to stop right now. That was the way that that was my thinking. Um, so I got tired of feeling sick and tired and being miserable. And one morning I got up, and it was a day that I, I couldn't get to work because I was just too hungover. And um, I called AA. And to this day, I guess I'll, my only explanation is, is that God had me to do that. Um, I can say that in all my drunken stupors, I always did say, God, please help me. And finally that help came. And the first time I went to AA, I think it was in 83 or 84, I'm not sure. <clears throat> but I guess I, at that time I wasn't really quite ready yet. I did um, call someone. Someone called me back. I did go to a meeting, a few meetings. And they would say, you know, don't drink and go to meetings. Well, I would drink and then, or go to meetings and then drink. That made perfect sense to me because I just wasn't ready to get it. Um, I think they call that the revolving door, something like that. Um, so that's what I did for a couple months, and then I would stay dry for a couple months, and then I would drink some more. Um, and I would go there, and other people would sit and talk about their feelings. And when it came to me, I didn't have anything to say. You know, I would bury my feelings so deep 
that actually when someone would physically touch me, I couldn't feel it. That's how buried my feelings were. So, you know, I continued to do that, and I would, like I said, every couple months I would go out and drink, and then I would stay dry for a little bit, and finally I got a few more of the yets that they gave me that they said that I would get if I kept drinking. Um, <clears throat> so my last drunk, I don't know, I went out like on a Friday night and came home on a Sunday, I think. Um, and somehow I ended up at a party at someone's house with like 14 gay women and one straight man. <laughs> I ended up in bed with a straight man. I don't know how I did that, but... That was my first real sign that I had no control over alcohol. <laughs> so then I got a clue, and uh, that was my last drink. And No offense, I do have one straight friend here tonight. It's okay, Susan. <laughs> so when I went back to that meeting, <clears throat> I had told them that I hadn't been honest with them and that I had been coming to meetings off and on and continuing to drink. <clears throat> and at this time, I was desperate. I was willing to go to any length to get sober. Through that whole situation, <clears throat> I ended up being pregnant from this person who I don't even know his name. Um, I was very ashamed. All my friends or all my drinking friends that were in my life were gay, and I didn't think that there was any way that I could tell them about this and they would understand. <clears throat> I did have one friend who was gay, but she was, I told her about it, but she was off in her own alcoholism and couldn't really be there for me. <clears throat> but I knew driving home that day on my last drunk, that this was enough and I did get an abortion and I had made the appointment even before I knew for sure because I, it was just a feeling that I had inside of me it's like that rude awakening that they talk about but that's what it was for me um, and like I said I did have a lot of uh, shame and guilt and I took care of it myself and the way that I kind of dealt with it was to just go on as normal. I mean, I had the abortion that day, and I went to work that afternoon, and then the next day I played in a softball game, which was really dumb. But I just wanted to get on with my life. Um, so I got sober in 1986 with a bunch of old white men. <laughs> Some of them who had more than 12 steps in their program. Uh, and I joke about that, but um, they gave me all the help that I needed. They gave me everything that I needed. Um, I needed the basics. They were hardcore AA members. I mean, they really knew the steps, and that's what I needed. And I was willing. I mean, I, I would do everything short of the 13th step. I would do everything. Um, to feel better. 
at that time I had a difficult relationship with God. Um, I always believed in God, but I always thought of it as a spirit outside of me that wasn't on my side. And today it's a spirit. Feedback. Today it's the spirit that's within me and always on my side and always there for me and I can rely on it anytime I want. Sometimes it's the last thing I think of when I'm going through a crisis, but I always get there eventually. Um, you know, the last seven years is just, I've grown so much, it's, I, I can't even begin to explain it. Um, go look at my notes. Today I know that recovery is an inside job. Um, I never knew that I was going to get the love and the care that I've gotten in this program. It was something that I had never seen before, um, that I could live my life without alcohol and without all the fear and paranoia and everything that goes with it. <clears throat> I didn't know that I could have relationships with other people, healthy relationships with other people. Um, at that time, I didn't get along with my family that well because after my mom's death, <clears throat> you know, money makes a, breaks a lot of people apart. And after my mom's death, there was a lot of dissension about money and what to do with it and all of that. <clears throat> so I just kind of took my stuff and moved after that. And. Uh, Today I have a relationship with my family. It's been, you know, when I came into AA the first time, I said, you know, I'm not making amends to anybody. If anything, they owe me. That's how I felt. <clears throat> and I've made amends to every single person that I can think of that I have harmed. You know, and I have a good relationship with my brother today, both my brothers. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I always used to try to tell them how much I've changed. When I first got into AA, I was so proud because I wasn't drinking and I was starting to feel better and I was starting to look better and smile and, and be happy. And uh, I would keep telling them that I changed and they would just have no reaction to it. Seven years later, without saying anything, they know that I've changed because of my behavior. So I, you know, I don't have to tell them that I've changed. They can see it. I was really touched by something that my brother had said to me a couple months ago <clears throat> during Easter. I was out of town and he wanted me to have Easter dinner with him. <clears throat> and I couldn't do it. And the next week he called me up and said, well, we really missed you at Easter dinner. And that's like a big thing because it used to be, that's okay, Val, don't go out of your way to come to our house. We can really, you know, it's, it's really okay if you don't come. So that's the difference, and it's those little things that really touch me. It's not the, it's not the big things that are visible to other people. <clears throat> so um, I have notes just in case I forgot a few. Uh, I guess one thing that I can say that I'm grateful for is that I never struggled with um, being gay. Um, you know, when you play the all-American lesbian sport of softball, you're bound to meet another lesbian, so <laughs> it's kind of 
how I came out, and it was just like a natural process. It just didn't, you know, there was no big drama in it at all. Um, my personal opinion on that is that I have a right to be who I am. <clears throat> I have the right to love, and I have the right to be loved. And all I can think of is, you know, there's too many of us in this world and in this room to have been unintentionally created by God. There's just, there's just no other explanation I have for that. Um, I didn't think I'd be this nervous. I kept telling everybody everything's fine. (laughs) That's what I did the first time and it got me drunk again. Um, My partner couldn't be here tonight and uh, she's never heard me give a lead and she was telling me that. I told her, that's okay, you get a lead every time we have an argument. So. <laughs> and at that time, I was supposed to talk up here for 30 minutes, and then she said 30 minutes wouldn't be enough time for me in that case. So. <laughs> So um, I, I don't have much else to say except there, there is one thing that kind of sums up how I feel that I wrote. And this lead really isn't about me so much as, as it is about you showing me that I can live my life in a sober way. <coughs> and I, I guess I just want to say thank you for showing me that I can live my life without alcohol one day at a time. That I could live a spiritual life based on the 12 steps. <coughs> that I could show you all of me and not be abandoned, that I could love and be loved, that I could learn new behaviors in my adult life instead of using what I learned to survive as a child, that I could make better choices and decisions for myself, and that I could trust in God in the process of recovery. For me, recovery is a lifelong journey of spiritual growth, And when it ends, I want to have lived my life in a sober way. There is a difference between being sober and living in recovery. I'm grateful to be sober. I'm grateful to be alive. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the play and the rest of the roundup. Go Bulls. (laughs)